Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. So welcome to the CAE Pilot Podcast. My name is Patrick Botter, and I'm thrilled to have you along again today. You know, on this podcast, we've always highlighted um, exceptional pilots and the aircraft that they fly. So we've talked about people like Teresa Claiborne, who was the first African-American female pilot in the United States Air Force, Emma's Henderson, who started Project Wingman in the UK. And we've also talked to pilots everything from seaplane pilots to Boeing 747, A380, and even Concorde pilots. And today's podcast promises to deliver as inspiring a story as the ones we've covered in the past. And it's my pleasure to welcome James Bush to the podcast. Hi, James. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from Glasgow in Scotland. Thrilled to have you. Thank you very much. And we always start off with, I don't know if it should be the first question, but uh, we like to kick it off with uh, on, on the bright side. So everybody has that one moment in their aviation career that stands out above all others. What is that one moment so far for you? So far for me, that has to be um, on my very first flight at the end of line training uh, that I was fully qualified and yeah, fully signed off to, uh, to fly the 145. It was from Glasgow up to Stornoway, uh, which is up in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland. And uh, it was a horrific day. The weather was awful. Uh, the winds were blowing right across the runway as uh, yeah, more often than not they are. And um, I just loved every second of it because it was just the culmination of, you know, uh, by that point, it had been 15 years since I'd you know, first started flying. And yeah, it was just an incredible feeling to sort of you know, sit there at the end of the runway in Glasgow and, and think, yeah, I, you know, I feel like I've made it. And just really excited to, you know, to see what the, the years ahead uh, would have in store. And so tell us about those first 15 years. Tell us how you got this passion for aviation. I know that you trained at CAE. Tell us a little bit about your career progression. Yeah, so I guess my sort of interest in aviation when I was a kid. My brother was in the Air Force, so you know, aviation was always something that was that was in the household. And it sounds cheesy, but going on holidays, I was always that kid that would fight for the window seat of being you know, incessantly pressed in the call while trying to get into the flight deck in the days when we still could. And I distinctly remember I was nine years old and I was on a flight back from Tenerife um, with an airline that's called JMC. It doesn't exist anymore. And um, I'd done the usual routine of window seat, get myself into the flight deck. But this was different because um, on that flight out, I'd noticed once we'd landed that there was a kid that had come out of the flight deck at the end. And I thought, wait a minute, he's been in there for landing. I want a shot of that. So... Uh, yeah, did, did the routine, got onto the flight deck, and after about half an hour of chatting away to the crew, um, sort of plucked up the courage to ask the captain if I could stay, and he said yes. And I just remember being absolutely mesmerized by the whole thing. You know, the, we were coming back into Manchester, and the, the ATC, uh, the lights at night, 
Um, and I was just in awe of, of everything. Um, and I think that com- you know, combined with, um, w- you know, with having a family tied to the RAF, it, it felt like you know, this is what I want to do. I had my first flight at 15. It was a trial lesson out of East Midlands Airport here in the UK. And I just came down from that, you know, beaming ear to ear and sheepishly asked my parents if I could do it again. And everyone sort of burst out laughing because they'd already, they'd already got it planned. You know, it was always going to be that, yeah, of course, you know, the, the next lesson booked and there was no way that you were ever um, not going to want to do this. Um, so I did. And that's where, it, that's where it started. It took me two and a half years to, to get my PPL. And, you know, that was sort of through a combination of uh, support from the family and, and me working. Uh, my very first job to, to fund the training uh, was at a local go-karting center in my hometown of uh, Stoke-on-Trent. And two shifts a week there for three weeks could, um, you know, allow me to squirrel away enough money to, to go and get back, back up in the air. And it's funny, actually, because not too dissimilar to to now, um, you know, the aviation industry, once I'd qualified as a private pilot, had started to go through a little bit of turmoil. It was the, it was the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And, um, you know, I, I thought, okay, what, what am I going to do here? I need a plan B or I need, I need you know, I need something else to, to fall back on, another, another string to my bow. Um, because aviation, is, as, as we see right now, is, you know, it's, it's a volatile place to be. So at that point, I went off to university, uh, got myself a, a law degree. I studied uh, in Durham up in the Northeast. Um, but it was weird because literally the entire time through that, through that process, all I was doing was sort of, you know, looking at what cadet programs are coming up and keeping up with the gains on in the industry on, you know, still flying, albeit little, to, to maintain my PPL. And but I knew very, well, instantaneously really that law wasn't going to be for me. Um, but still I needed to have that, that, that plan B, you know, and I needed a a means by which I could, I could fund the rest of my training from there. So in the years that followed uni, I went off to work in the hospitality industry. Uh, that was something that I'd grown up with. My parents had always run bars and restaurants and it was, you know, it was, I loved it actually. It was, you know, it's sort of, it was my second, second passion, if you like. And I thought if, if I can't do you know, if I can't fly, um, at least do something that will allow me to, you know, fund my training when the, when the time is right. And that, that's what it did. And that took me all the way up to uh, 2017. It, it's funny that you mentioned going into the flight deck. I started uh, my career as a flight attendant. I flew during uh, university. Oh, wow. um, and uh, we were mad, worked at Air Canada, and we were mandated to bring all the kids up to the flight deck at the time. And as often as the pilot would allow to have someone in the jump seat for landing. And so it's, it's nice to hear that that did have an impact on, oh, um, on people. Yeah. Which is really, really nice. But I'm surprised you didn't become cabin crew. If you were, you were in the hospitality industry, your love of flying and you wouldn't be the first. I mean, I know of, of one pilot I know uh, who's now flies private jets was a flight attendant alongside me and he left to go learn how to fly. So it's, uh, I'm surprised that that didn't, yeah, it's, uh, interesting. But one of the things that you do have to do, of course, uh, is get your medical class one. 
And that's where things sort of, that's where you hit a speed bump that would end up being, well, it was an important one, if I can call it a speed bump, but it also uh, started, I think, one of the biggest um, chapters in your life, if you will. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, and, and it's funny, and, and I haven't really spoken about the, I guess, the, the first chapter of this much before now, but I actually realized quite recently that, that there was two chapters to this, and it first started actually back in January 2014, and I was walking back home through the park in Glasgow on a beautiful um, sort of crisp winter's day, and I got a phone call um, from um, a training provider to say, congratulations, you're through to the final stage of the um, British Airways Future Pilot Program selection. You know, well done. There's, there's, only, there's only 32 people left for 16 places, so you're in you know, with, with a with a great chance and what should have been the you know most joyous moment in my aviation career to that point um actually wasn't because 15 minutes before that i found out the news that i had been um diagnosed with hiv and at that point in time you know i remember thinking very very quickly oh my God, what will this mean for my aviation career? And in those early stages, I, I wrote anonymously to the UK CAA to, to ask you know, what the position was. And uh, the reply came back to say that a person living with HIV needs to have a, um, a multiple limitation. And I thought no more of it. And you know, it gave me some sort of sense of relief. So I carried on doing what I'd been doing for all the years prior, which was to apply for training programs and, and cadetships and, you know, go on. Um, cut to 2017, and I had been successful this time to the final stage um, with the EasyJet MPL cadet program. And I was offered a place and I, you know, wanted to take it. And I thought, great, okay, fine. And now is the time to go and get my class one medical. And you know, I knew that, that uh, this OML sort of situation or multiple limitation, should I say, um, existed, um, but was confident that it wouldn't be a problem. So I went for the medical, passed all the tests. Um, I was going to say with flying colors then, but that's way too cheesy. Right? <laughs> you know what? Of all, of, of all of the podcasts uh, to, to use that on. Like, you know, yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, pa passed all the tests and... Um, Sat down with the doctor and he says, "Look, you know, yeah, you're great. You're you're fit. You're um, you know, you um, you're fine. But uh, unfortunately, I can't I can't give you this medical because um, because you're HIV positive." I said, "Right, okay. You know, that's not. I know, and um, I know that that's going to require a multiple limitation, and that created a problem because what I didn't know from 2014 and wasn't clear." Uh, was that the multiple limitation can only be applied to a holder of a commercial license, i.e. somebody who's already completed training. It can't be applied to a cadet like me. But what it did mean is that there was a sort of a strange situation whereby if you were a, a pilot who subsequently contracted HIV, you could continue to fly. You could get this multiple limitation and everything would be fine. But if you were like me, who was HIV positive, but wished to become a pilot, you couldn't. So, 
yeah, you know, immediately I thought, well, there's, there's, there's clear discrimination here. Um, and I was just in total shock, you know, when, uh, when, when that happened. And we're not talking like the first thing that strikes me when we talk about this 2014 and 2017, I mean, people have been living with HIV, living full lives and, you know, for, you know, I don't know the the history of it, but we're not talking a period and we're talking a period in time where it's quite common for people to live long, healthy lives with HIV. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just funny that we're, you know, if you were to told me we were talking about the early 2000s or the 1990s, I'd say, okay, well, you know, maybe there was less known at the time, but it seems to me that we're in an era now where, you know, it, it shouldn't be an issue. Absolutely. And, you know, the, I guess the first point to pick up on there is, you know, what does it mean to live with HIV in 2021 now? Essentially, you know, for me, I can live a normal, happy healthy life with a normal life expectancy and being on treatment and being on successful treatments means that I can't pass that virus on to any of my partners or anybody else, you know, and that, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that you're right, you know, the, the position of the, of the CAA uh, and the European regulator back in 2017 was based on data, science and evidence that was from the 90s and the early 2000s. And, you know, in, in that time, it was different. HIV was different. With regards to you know, HIV specifically, it, the, the advancements that have been made, and I guess probably the only thing to challenge this now is being coronavirus, mm-hmm. treatment has advanced in, in, in the field of HIV quicker than, than any other virus and, you know, in, in our history. And, you know, what that medication can do for, for us and for me is, is make me just like you. Um, so I was, you know, um, yeah, really sort of confused, really, as to, as to what, what the barrier was. Especially that it seems there was this chicken and egg almost situation where, you know, had you done the training first and then had your medical, you'd have been fine. But the opposite wasn't true. Yeah. So, so I, I sort of refer to it as a catch-22 without, right. you know, without the... Without the commercial license, you couldn't get a medical with an OML, but without a medical with an OML, you um, couldn't have a commercial license. And it, it, was, it was strange. And it was strange because actually, what was I asking to do here? I was asking to go and fly the same single engine piston aircraft that I had been flying for the past 10 years, um, but this time to, to, you know, to, to complete a commercial license. And um, from a risk perspective, that should be no different because I was allowed to retain my PPL and that was the key thing, you know? Um, so I could still fly. You know, is it that it just, it had gone on and never been changed because nobody had asked for it to change and you're the first person to ask for it to change? Or was it a matter of, you know, sticking to a principle? It's a good question. I think that, I don't know if anybody had, you know, had, had tried to challenge it um, before, before me, to be honest. And, um, and if they had, I guess what would have happened would be the same as, as happened to me. And, you know, I got to a stage of, you know, running through the, the appeals process um, with the CAA for them to then involve the answer to then ultimately still be told, no, these are the rules. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's how we apply them. 
And I think that, I guess the difference for me is that, you know, there was two things really. It, one, it was, you know, we're very lucky in the UK that we have the Equality Act and mm-hmm. HIV is a protected characteristic. And I, I know from, from speaking to other pilots who are facing similar challenges in Europe now that that fight isn't going to be so easy. So I knew that on that front, there was, there was something here that um, could help me. And then secondly, from a medical perspective, again, it was this point that the policies and procedures that were in place were based on a body of evidence that was now ultimately out of date. And that was why I thought, you know what, this, this needs to be challenged. And so tell us about that challenge. Tell us, you know, what, uh, how did you go about, you know, tackling this injustice? So after exhausting the appeals process myself, I, um, I sort of, I think that was probably the lowest point in the process, you know, thinking actually, I'm not sure that I could ever, I don't, I don't know where to go with this. But after exhausting that process, I took the, the case, my issue, um, to HIV Scotland, who are a, uh, a small organization based up in Edinburgh, and said, you know, look, you know, this is, this is the position I'm in. What can we do? And together, we sort of devised a, um, a sort of a three, three-pronged approach or a three-pronged strategy, if you like. So the first thing um, was in the media. Uh, we got a... LGBT journalist, uh, Patrick Strudwick, to, to cover the story. Um, and that was to sort of raise awareness, you know, and to, to share the story and to say that, hey, HIV is still, uh, there are still injustices. It's not, you know, it, it, it's not done. And actually, he's a real life example of, of someone whose life has been impacted by this. And, and that was sort of, you know, to gain some public support. And even in 2017, um, it was bizarre because I'd done that anonymously. And yeah, you know, it sort of made various appearances um, on, on TV and radio where either my voice changed and, or um, you know, my face played out, which was, which was super strange. And I'll, I'll come back to that one later. Yeah. But that was the first thing, to sort of you know, raise, raise, raise public awareness and, and drum up public support. The second thing was to get medical evidence and, and medical support. So, you know, anecdotally, I knew my own consultants knew that I was, was fit, was healthy. And, um, you know, we, we needed, um, you know, more experts to back us up, really. So we took that to the British HIV Association, who themselves made representations to the UKCAA to say, look, you know, this body of evidence is, uh, is in need of review and it, it, it needs to change. And then the third part was a, a political um, approach. So uh, first of all, I went to my member of Scottish Parliament who took the question of, you know, or took my case to, uh, to Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, and she stood up in First Minister's questions and said, you know, HIV discrimination of, of any kind is, is wrong. And you know, I'll personally make um, a representation to the CAA to, to encourage them to review this, this policy. A similar conversation was then had um, in Westminster, and the Transport Secretary at the time took it to the Select Committee who you know, debated, you know, where can we go with this? And ultimately they, they reached the same conclusion that actually this, this was wrong. And the, the application or the stance that this multi-degree limitation could only be applied to, sorry, couldn't be applied to initial medicals 
can't stand because it was that that was that was creating the you know the element of discrimination. So that process from start to finish took almost a year. And yeah, in, in January 2018, um, I got a phone call from the CEO of FHV Scotland to say, sort of, you know, are you sitting down? Um, and it's funny, I think I was lying on a sunbed at the time. I was on holiday. <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, no, I'm sitting down. Um, he says, uh, we've won. I'm sorry, what? Said, yeah, we've, we've won. The, um, the CAA have, uh, have announced that they are going to issue you your, your class one with your OML. And um, yeah, go go train. I'm just wondering about people's reactions along the way, because I would, in my, and perhaps I'm naive in thinking this, but I would imagine that as you went up the different levels, different organizations, and then to the government, I get the feeling that you must have been met with, I would imagine a lot of support, but also like people not believing that this is possible. Yeah, there was everything really, um, you know, and to be honest, the, the spectrum of reactions that, um, that I had ranged from, yes, of course, you know, we wouldn't have somebody uh, of such reckless intent at the, at the front of an aircraft to, yes, of course, this is completely wrong and absolutely this needs to be challenged and this needs to be changed. And that was quite interesting because I never knew how it was going to go, you know, right. uh, and it was always sort of, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. And right. um, yeah, so we conversations was, uh, was a challenge. But ultimately, what I did know was that the law was, was on my side, right? And um, it's interesting because what had happened during that year is that that, that law degree that I'd sort of never really I was going to ask. do. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that law degree that I didn't really want to do in the first place had, had all of a sudden um, become the thing that had sort of given me the sort of tenacity to, you know, to pick through the regulations and to say, well, actually, you know, the, the, there's a difference here between a, a European regulation that is binding and acceptable means of compliance documentation and guidance material that isn't. And what was happening in my case is that um, that guidance material was being followed. Um, but it was being followed as if it was, you know, golden and if it was law. Um, and, and, you know, I, I knew that that wasn't the only way in which you know, this could be handled. And you mentioned that you started this off sort of anonymously, right? You were talking about your, your you know, your voice being changed. It almost sounds a bit like a spy novel, you know, your face being blurred and all of that. But that changed along the way. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about that. This was after I'd started training, and by the time that all of this was resolved, the um, you know the opportunity to to take up a a place on the uh, on the MPL cadet program had had, had passed me by. Um, but I thought, you know what, I've come this far. I just need to you know find a way to make this happen. And it was at that point that I uh, decided to to go modular, and um, you know started my um, training with CAE, and uh, ultimately um, got my. CPL, MEIR, and it was through that process that I thought, you know what, the, the story isn't finished yet because, you know, the, the 2017 was here, you know, here is this, this problem with this pilot Anthony. 2018 was, you know, pilot Anthony as, as um, he, can, he can learn to fly. Okay, where, has he, where is he now? And once I'd finally secured a job, I thought, wait a minute, you know, there's, there's, there's an opportunity here. It's not very often 
in in life that people are you know given a platform and and have support and and i'd had a, an incredible platform and incredible support and i thought i want to tell the story i want to tell the next chapter of the story and the good news because the good news is you know it's not just about overcoming the barrier of hiv it's it's doing that and it's getting a job um but i thought if i was to continue to tell that story as pilot anthony all i would do was continue to perpetuate all of the stigma and all of the misconceptions that surround those of us with HIV, right? Because it would have been a case of, okay, so he's so proud, but not so proud that he won't tell us who he is. He won't use his own name. Right. Um, and actually to have, to have told that story um, as Pilot Anthony, I think would have done more harm than good. Um, not just for anybody reading it, but, but for me, actually, it had been, it had been a sort of a, a cathartic process of, of me accepting myself and accepting that diagnosis and actually now having the evidence that this won't stop me from doing what I want to do or becoming who I want to be. And I think about it, we, we speak to a lot of women on this podcast who are the first to do, and they had to overcome a lot. And here you are, someone who could have stayed anonymous in a lot of ways, gone on with your, with your job without anybody really knowing. And you chose to, to speak out, and I find that very, um, very courageous of you. But did you have, like, was it hard to do? Good question. Um, it was something that I reflected on for a long time. And ultimately, you know, thinking back to being diagnosed in 2014, January 2014, to um, coming out, for want of a better word, in January 2020, that process took six years. And for me, the, the concern that I had with regards to aviation was, um, frankly, getting a job. Because right. I, you know, getting the medical was hard enough. And what I didn't want until I got a job was, was, was you know, um, I didn't want to score an own goal and put another barrier in, in place for myself. Um, once I'd done that, it then became about, okay, well, two things, actually. One, I knew that the, the law, again, was, was on my side. There's, there's no way in which, um, you know, any organization, um, let alone an airline, could at that point post an offer of employment and post a disclosure, um, you know, um, have an issue with HIV. And secondly, the the support that I got from the airline was, was phenomenal and mm-hmm. has been, you know, um, um, from, from, from the crew to, you know, to my boss at the time and to the CEO, everybody was incredibly supportive when I said that, you know, this is what I want to do. And I think that for me gave me a sense of, you know, actually, if this doesn't go well, or if this, you know, go, goes wrong, um, I know that I'm, I felt protected genuinely and um, it, it's an organization in which, and you know, and this is, this is something that this isn't a plug. This is how I genuinely feel. It feels like a family and it feels mm. like one in which, yeah, I knew that whatever was to happen, it was going to be okay. And the third thing, and this is probably the biggest thing is that, and I say this to um, others living with HIV who haven't disclosed a lot is, it's a process and, uh, you know, first of all, you've got to be comfortable with that diagnosis yourself. And then you start to confide in close family and friends 
And then the third step is confiding in, you know, the general public. And it's less of a confidence thing and more of a declaration then, I guess. And at that point, the important thing to remember uh, is that no matter how somebody reacts to that, to that disclosure, it is not a reflection nor judgment of you. It is a reflection of their understanding, their um, experience and their knowledge on the subject. So whatever that reaction is, um, you know, never, never take that back upon yourself and, and, you know, uh, let it impact you. And that's where I got to. And I thought, you know what, it, it, it doesn't matter how this goes almost, you know, or for me personally, because I know that that is going to be representative of, of people's place and what I want to do is start a conversation about HIV in yeah. an environment in which, by virtue of the fact of me being the first, the conversation has never been had before. Right. Someone very wise once told me, your opinion of me is none of my business, which, yeah. is, a little, which is a little bit uh, of what you're saying, right? Were you surprised by the support you got? I mean, I, I, was, uh, I recently was in a conversation with a group of colleagues, and they sort of mentioned that, you know, this sort of, COVID uh, depression, whatever you want to call it, was sort of hitting me. And when I talked about it openly, I realized that I got messages from everywhere of support, people saying, you know, like, I feel the same way and all that. Were you surprised by the support you, you got? I was surprised by, yeah, I do you know what, I was surprised by, you know, some of the, some of the communication that I received in the, you know, the days and weeks after I'd gone public from people within the airline and, and within the, the wider sort of aviation community, it, it blew me away, to be honest, because, you know, it, there was sort of guys saying, you know, I'm in the same position as you or my, um, my best friend um, is, is living with HIV and, you know, he's the only person that I've, I've known or, or she's the only person that I've known, you know, again, another misconception, you know, HIV is this exclusive, you know, gay male um, problem, and it, it's not. Um, and, and yeah, it was just, again, it was just so great to be able to just have those conversations and, and, and inevitably, you know, for the, for the weeks and months that followed, every time I flew with a new captain that I hadn't, you know, um, seen since that, that day happened, um, you know, of course we had that conversation and it was never prompted by me um, because that was never what it was about. Um, but it was great because it just means that if you can just change one person's opinion or just leave them with one fact and you know, one fact being that I am as healthy as you are and I can, you know, I can live a normal life, it, it, it's great. And if they then go home and say, you know, you wouldn't believe that conversation I had with you know, my colleague at work today. The, the sort of the message, um, you know, gets out there little by little, farther and wider, and hopefully um, starts to change perceptions. And it also normalizes HIV. And that was the other bit is that, you know, by talking about it in, in a way in which, you know, this, this is just, it's just another virus. It's, you know, it's just another chronic condition. Yeah, it helps to sort of hope you change the stigma. You know, try my best not to judge um, anyone's questions 
everyone's coming from different places and you know here in the uk before you know before then i don't know if you've seen the the tv show it's a sin i don't know if it's made it to canada yet but um it is a a, a tv show that um, documents a a group of, of friends who who go through the um the AIDS crisis of the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. and you know it tells the story of what it is or what it was actually um to to live with hiv and um you know what that has done has reopened um a conversation about hiv in the uk which which we didn't have before because prior to you know prior to that the only thing that people knew were the public health campaigns of the late 80s and early 90s, which, you know, were, were quite shocking and essentially said that, you know, if you contract HIV, you will develop AIDS and you will die. And we've had nothing in the UK since that. And again, that was, you know, that was partly why I did what I did, because not to say that it has reached the scale of that, but the more people that can come out and and speak about what it is to really live with this today, um, the easier and the quicker we will change those perceptions and, and get the message out there that, you know, um, me and you are just the same. And if we go back to your, uh, to your pilot career, so January 2020, you become the first HIV-positive cadet to get your license. And, um, you know, you do your first flight, which you told us about. And then the pandemic hits. Um, tell us what that was like. What was that like to finally have everything you've sort of, that you've literally been fighting for, and then to literally fly into a pandemic? Oh, I don't even know where to start on that one, to be honest. Um, it's been the most crazy, um, I was going to say year then, but that, it's not a year anymore. It's, uh, it's a lot longer than that. It's more than that, yeah. Um, yeah, I still feel really lucky. Because throughout this entire pandemic, you know, I've been one of the very, very few people that has still been able to fly. And I can't help but feel grateful for that. And it's, you know, it's almost by sort of divine intervention or minor miracle that, it, that it's happened that way. Um, that I've, you know, I've never um, been on the ground for more than a month and a, and a bit. Do you think that, um, that the, the whole COVID um that COVID itself, what we've just lived through this year, changes the way people might see HIV? Because we're all, we've all said, oh, if I'm super careful, I won't get it. And if I'm super careful, I won't get it. And then, oops, one day you get it. You know, do you think that might have changed? And, and there is a lot of comparison to HIV and COVID. In, in, you, know what, really- you know, you hear it every once in a while. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's really interesting to me, that one, because it's 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 taken and this this you know this might sound um these aren't my words these these are taken from from the the community as a whole is that you know it's taken uh, it's taken this pandemic um for people to sort of understand and appreciate what what those of us in the hiv positive community went through in the first pandemic you know and that's that's the point here is that this is this is this is the second pandemic of our generation first and um the yeah you know those sort of thoughts and feelings of you know not not wanting to get close to somebody and you know um not you know walking across the street uh, to to sort of keep yourself safe they're also relatable to to what 
to what happened in you know, the 80s and 90s with regards to people living with HIV. Right. The only difference this time is that, you know, the, the majority of the population have been on the receiving side of, of those thoughts and feelings. And they've seen people walk across the street and, you know, yeah. and, and take a step back. And, you know, I, I had it in, um, in Gatwick Airport last week. I, uh, I inhaled instead of uh, sort of drank my coffee and uh, sort of, you know, progressing to a coughing fit. And it was, the, it was almost like the entire departure lounge just kind of went silent and everyone just kind of spread out a little bit. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what this, this pandemic has, has done. The other bit for me is that the travel restrictions that we currently face, you know, we hope, and it's been a hot topic of conversation in the UK and I'm sure across the world uh, as to how we can lift them. Um, Because, you know, we are all so desperate to travel or at least it's that sort of concept of nobody likes to feel restricted. Whether they sort of go and exercise that right is a different thing, but everybody you know wants to you know wants to have that choice imagine a world in which in five or ten years time these restrictions due to coronavirus are still here but we know that we've got vaccinations we know that case numbers are low um but the restrictions are still there because a country is in fear of that you know that one person or those two people that might come in and start chain that cycle once again that's the world that still exists for people that live with hiv in 25 percent of the world there are still restrictions in place be it for entering the country be it bringing in anti-retroviral medication be it seeking work or seeking residency and this is due to a virus that is not easily transmitted in fact someone who is on successful treatment is undetectable which means that they can't pass that virus on to others in comparison to coronavirus, which we know has been so easily transmitted thus far. And yeah, you know, it is, it, it, it is crazy to me that we are still, you know, living in that world. We've discovered a link between you and someone we've, uh, we've interviewed here on the podcast, and that's uh, Emma Henderson, of course, uh, from Project Wingman. And uh, during the pandemic, you've been involved with that organization. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So um, Emma um, actually um, taught me to fly. She was one of my instructors um, years ago um, up in Inverness and have incredibly fond memories of of, of those days. And um, when um, Project Women was launched, um, I reconnected with, with Emma on LinkedIn and um, basically said, you know, look, how can, how can I help? And at the time we didn't have any, any lounges in, in Glasgow. And, um, yeah, I was part of the, the team of, of four, four guys that had, uh, that had launched the, uh, the Glasgow lounges. And it was, it was a fantastic time, genuinely, you know, not only because you could see the value that the, that the NHS staff were, you know, were taking to just have, um, you know, somewhere to sort of go and, and, and relax and, you know, tea and empathy uh, was what we were providing. And it wasn't just tea and empathy for the NHS staff, it was tea and empathy for us. Because at that time, you know, in the early days, the, the, the level of uncertainty was, um, was crippling. You know, most of 
my um, team at um, in Glasgow were were at risk of redundancy, mm-hmm. and you know that is a huge a huge burden and a huge you know potential life change that uh, that had impacted everybody. Um, and it was just so fantastic to be able to you know get together in a room and and connect with crew and and make friends actually you know some guys uh, I'll, I'll be friends with for life you know because of Project Wingman. Um, and quite often, the only time we sort of see crew from other airlines is, you know, when we're checking into a hotel or going through security and, you know, you're like ships in the night and you might have this glance or, you know, there's always that sort of respect that's unstated, but everybody knows, you know, you know, the sort of day that they've had and they know the sort of day that you're going to have. Um, but to have the opportunity to actually sit down and talk about it and, you know, reminisce and, um, yeah, and, and hope actually that you know everyone can get back to it was was phenomenal. Um, and it's yeah, it is an incredibly special um, thing that, uh, that that Emma has created genuinely. And it's just that ability to be hopeful and to contribute because we think that you know as a former crew member too, you think oh the only way I can tr- contribute is when I'm flying an airplane or I'm you know serving on an airplane. But there are so many skills and other things that that can be used especially during a pandemic absolutely and and that's a thing and 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 it was so great to see i think we'll walk away from this as time goes by with many more positives than negatives not in terms of you know the people we've lost and all that because we've all been affected by the tragedy of it but in terms of how it changes our lives i'd like to believe that we will have many more positive changes as a result than negative I hope so. I hope so. I think, you know, for, for everybody within our industry, it is proven, you know, just how resourceful and resilient everybody is. Yeah. And, you know, to, to come out of this, it's not very often you read a, a, a story of a pilot or crew member that has lost their job. Often, the story is, you know, a pilot or crew member has lost their job or they're furloughed and they have gone on to do this, you know, yeah. and that is just so inspiring and, 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 and unique. And it just shows how, how, you know, how awesome the people in our, in our industry are. Listen, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you're one of those awesome people. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, you know, when when Kamala Harris was uh, elected, they said, "Oh, you know, girls and black girls can now look at someone and see that they can do it." And I think uh, that's the kind of thing that you've done, right? You've shown a whole group of people that, you know, because of your fight, so many more now see a possibility and can pursue a career that they might not have been able to had you not fought. And uh, I think that's. Uh, that's quite inspirational and you're, you're a trailblazer in that respect. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, yeah, you're, you're someone to look up to for sure. I think. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's been really great talking to you, you know, thank you for joining us on the podcast and, uh, we'll have the chance to catch up again. Definitely. Thanks a lot. 
CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.